0: a message for us that he he's just raging to get up here and give, excited, and he's going to give it with power and fire, and he didn't say that, <laughs> I did, so we'll see what happens to him, and uh, for the first message then, Mr. Reg Nolan. No, this is not fire and brimstone, just the opposite. Uh, I hesitated to develop and deliver this message today because it is a bit sensitive and quite tender at present because so many of us have lost loved ones and other people that we know. Others have friends and loved ones in the hospital right now battling this pandemic. So I am not unaware, insensitive, or cold-hearted, about the effects the, of discussing such a topic. However, I feel it is an important message to communicate. While death is, in, is universal and comes to us all eventually, over the past two years, we have witnessed a marked increase in the death rate as this modern plague of uh, COVID-19 and all its variants rages, uh, ravages our world killing the hundreds of thousands of people across our nation and millions around the planet. The 24-hour news reporting cycle doesn't help. Uh, it has become a litany of victims of this disease. And Rick's prayer request notices, which I greatly appreciate, uh, have become harbingers of sad news. I open each one with a bit of trepidation, wondering who has fallen that I may know. We can't stop it. At most, we can slow it down. But we do have the hope of victory over death through the one person who has survived this swath, Jesus Christ. So how do we react when death draws near? Do we follow the admonition of Welsh poet Dylan Thomas and not go gentle in that good night, but rage, rage against the dying of the light? Are we filled with fear and trembling about the prospects of an afterlife? Do we passively surrender and pass quietly into oblivion? Are we overwhelmed with our regrets about things that we have done or not done in our lives? Do we leave saddened by the loss of those we love? Or do we turn our last act into an act of faith? Everyone dies alone, regardless how many people are standing around when the monitor goes flatline. How we die depends largely upon the nature of life or our views, our beliefs about the nature of life in the universe. Those who view the human being as merely earth 's most sophisticated animal, as a biochemical machine expect simply to cease to exist however. If few can conceive of true nothingness, true nothingness is a difficult concept to grasp. And we can do it only while we're alive. The vast majority died deceived, having swallowed the really big lie of the immortal soul, expecting an immediate eternal life of paradise among the clouds, an eternity of torment or punishment for their misdeeds, a rebirth into another body for another ride on the merry-go-round of life, union with eternal light, or cold, everlasting darkness. They have been taken in by the first and greatest liar, Satan, the father of lies. Although some uh, today may be trying to outdo him and take him, challenge him for his title. John, turn to John 8:44. By the way, I have put out a, a handout here, former teacher that I am. this will give you a guide, and these are all very, very important scriptures that you will want to keep as a reference. John 8:44: uh, "You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and, he, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him." When he speaks the lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is the liar and the father of it. And the first lie he ever told human beings was a big lie, the really big lie of immortality. This is in Genesis 3, 4, and 5. Genesis 3, verses 4, and 5. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, the tree of life, Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. But the truth is much, much more glorious. It requires the acknowledgement, though, of Lord Jehovah as Lord and Master of the Cosmos, which Satan is not willing to do. Hebrews 9, verses 23 to 28. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heaven should be purified with these, the earthly sacrifices, and all. but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself uh, often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then he must have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you realize that as the creator, he is his one life is worth multiple billions of universes, a multiverse within this one person. So that his one sacrifice is worth more and all of our lives together. So Christ, so and it is appointed that unto man once to die, but after that the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear sins for the many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Indeed, this whole concept of the immortality of the soul is an outright lie that sneaked into the back door in the, sneaked in the back door of Roman Catholicism from Eastern religion and Egyptian lore. It has no roots in Judaism or in true first century apostolic Christianity. Rather, the word that is translated as soul is nephesh in strong concordance as H5315 in the Old Testament, which refers to any living, breathing creature, or as numa. Uh, in the New Testament, it's as strong as G 4151, meaning the breath of life, and does not refer to any kind of incorporeal essence at all. For a more detailed explanation, if you want to get more, if see me, you really get riled up about this, uh, go check out my <clears throat> message called The Greatest Lie Ever Told that I presented back in 19 and, and 2014. Reproving this. Reproving the non-existence of the immortal soul is not the purpose of this message, though. That was, that's a given from the previous message that I gave. Rather, I would like to illustrate how dying with the knowledge is an act of faith in Christ. If we die with full knowledge that we are entirely mortal, that we then, then we die knowing that there is not an immediate afterlife waiting for us in heaven, hell, or purgatory, nor that we are about to take another... Turn on the wheel of life in some new body, but that we lie unconscious in our grave unless and until Christ returns for us. Consider the words of Solomon, the wisest man besides Jesus Christ to ever live. In Ecclesiastes 9:5, he says, "For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten." I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, our our time on earth, unless we make some great contribution and our name goes down in a history book, or maybe it becomes the name of a highway, or a building, or a bridge, or some other kind of structure that's named after us. If we don't make that big a contribution, we have about two generations, as long as our name is alive. As long as our name exists, Ecclesiastes nine ten. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whether you are going. Indeed, Solomon laments the fact that we spend our entire lives gaining facts and developing character, only to see it dissolve into dust. He calls that vanity. I do too. Uh, Ecclesiastes 318 20. I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them, that they may see that they, are, they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man is no advantage over the animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Solomon's father, David, a man after God's own heart, also sang of what happens to a man after death. In Psalm 146, 4, he says, His breath goes forth, he returns to the earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. And even Job, who suffered untold misery, still preferred that misery to death, for he knows that. In Job fourteen twelve, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be aroused from their sleep. No. At death, we simply cease to be. We simply cease to be. And we stay in our graves. We are not translated to some watered-down waiting room version of the paradise or torment uh, erroneously believed to await each individual. If such were so, and it certainly is not, then surely David, the patriarch of the tribe of Judah and the ancestor of the human Christ, would have gone to heaven. However, we find Peter in his powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost, as recorded by Luke, warning his brethren against the popular Greek notion that man has an immortal soul by using David as an example. In Acts 2, 29 and, and 34, he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher remains with us today. In other words, you don't believe he's dead? Go dig up him dig him up out of his grave. He's still there. And then stepping down to verse 40, 34, For David is not ascended into the heavens, John then declares the universality. He takes it one step further. This was one example with with the patriarch David. But John goes beyond that. He declares the universality of death without afterlife when he proclaims that no man has ascended into into heaven in John 3.13. Even the favorite scripture of many of the fundamentalists, John 3.16, expresses concern that we shall... We shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Placing life and death, as, or placing life as the polar opposite of perish, indeed, biblical scripture without Catholic Protestant indoctrination implies that we cease to be until and unless the eternal God, out of mercy and grace, decides to reconstruct us and restore the life that has died. No, we remain in our graves dead to the world, completely helpless and dependent upon God, Yahweh shall die, for any future life. To die knowing that we are really dead. Dead to the world with only the trust in Jesus' word to sustain us for any hope of a future life. That is more than dying in faith. That is dying as an act of faith. That is, dying as an act of faith, defiantly shaking our this in the face of death and the devil. For our dying to be a true act of faith, we must see death for what it really is, or truly is. It's not, as some people will believe, merely a transition to a new phase of life, but is the end of existence without outside intervention. Anything else cheapens the enormity of Christ's sacrifice. But we do have hope. We do have hope. We have Jesus' promise and assurance. In John 14, verses 1 through 3, we have, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is a promise that he made. We have also the testimony of the two angelic beings who are in on the plan of God from the very beginning uh, for the salvation of most of humanity. This is recorded in Acts 1, verses 10 and 11. And while they were looking there into heaven, He having gone, even behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come again in the way that you have seen him going into heaven. We also have the testimony of the apostles. And we have Paul, we have Peter. All right, for example, in First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 17, we have uh, 13 through 17, but I do not want you to be ag- ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you use sorrow as others who have no hope. For if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring uh, with him you know, those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with, together with them in the clouds to meet our Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, we see Peter says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, or is that ever the case, that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past you were not a people, but now are, uh, are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter continues in Second Peter 1, verses 2 and 4, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by, uh, by glory and virtue by which you have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. That's what we know. That's what we're relying, relying upon. That th- through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature, nature having escaped the corruption in the world through lust. Do you realize what that last verse is saying? If we're going to be partakers of the divine nature, that means we're going to become like God. We're going to become God. That's powerful to think about. We have the vision revealed to John on the Isle of Patmos. In Revelation 20, verses 5 and 6, he says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who hath part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. In Revelation 20, John records, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his work. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. you realize what that means? If death is thrown into the lake of fire, from that point forward, there will be no more death. Because is, death is destroyed. The grave is destroyed. This is the second death. And anyone not found and written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Yes, indeed. We have been given exceedingly great and precious promises through which we may be partakers of that divine nature. But those promises do not fall to us automatically just by dying as the ancient Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Romans proposed. Rather, those promises fall to us as an act of faith that Jesus will keep his word. That Jesus will keep his word. If he were a liar, then all would be lost for us. Do you realize that? If he's not telling the truth, then all of it is lost. First Corinthians, Paul, Paul acknowledges this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 to 20. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. For now Christ is risen, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fortunately for us, our God is a God of truth. Uh, Hebrews 6:17 confirms that. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immu- immutability. That means he doesn't change. The immu- immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, those two immutable things, by the way, are his ever-truthful word and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation that who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope uh, set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered, the forerunner, of course, is Christ, has entered for us, even Jesus, having been made, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By the way, you do want to realize that Melchizedek was not Levite. He was the priest of Salem. He pre-existed all of this. So, so let us then not be deceived and deluded by all the lies and the deception perpetuated down through the ages from the father of lies. When we do face death, and most of us will, our greatest giant, let us face it with the confidence as an act of faith in the truthfulness of the promises of God and of Jesus, his son, the only one who has thus far gotten the victory over death. Have an act of faith when you when the time comes.